Father, we do look forward to that day when we will see you face to face. Where we will be united with you, never to be separated, Lord. And now, Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand how you want to work through us to help more and more people come into your family, Lord. We know that we live in a world that oftentimes is opposed to you, who even denies your existence. But Lord, we believe that you are real, that you are true, that you're the one true God. We pray this morning that you will equip us and encourage and motivate us, Lord, to faithfully serve as your ambassadors in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Right here in my hand, I have a set of very worthless directions. You see, a couple of weeks ago, I was setting out to go up to a car dealership in the city of Plymouth. And I'm not from Missouri, so I'd never been to Plymouth as far as I knew. And so I figured I need some sort of directions to try to figure out how to get there. And I don't have any sort of smartphone that's able to give me directions as I drive. But my wife and I do have a GPS unit. Uh, but we had a slight problem in that the fuse for the cigarette lighter in our car is burned out. Actually, it has been for quite a while, but I just haven't gotten around to replacing it. And so my GPS unit is not nearly as reliable when you can't plug it into the power source. So I figured, okay, I'm just going to go old school, going to print out some directions from the internet. And, you know, that served me really well for many, many years. And I thought, well, that's what I'll do here. So I had my trusty set of directions. And Micaias and I embarked on an expedition up to Plymouth. And we were going on a little bit of a scouting journey to find out if this minivan we were interested in was worth pursuing any further before the rest of the family joined us. And so we're driving along, following the directions, driving on Highway 57 up to Plymouth. And then the directions said, take a left off of Highway 57. So I took a left and then followed the directions on a, for a couple miles. And all, all, all this time, I have this commentary coming from the back seat from Micaias. I mean, you can imagine if you have young children, if you ever have. Are we almost there? Where's the car dealership? Are we lost? <laughs> and all, all the time I'm saying, no, I think it's just a little bit farther, a little bit farther. But in the back of my mind, I was beginning to wonder because I'm thinking, okay, we're out here in the middle of farm fields. We're driving through the woods. Maybe this is just a newer car dealership. They just built one on the outskirts of town or kind of out in the country a little bit, expecting the town to expand. You know, that little nice large metropolis of Plymouth, maybe it's expanding very quickly out into the country. So I was giving the map the benefit of the doubt because generally these things are reliable. But after a while, I realized, you know, we're far beyond where it said that we should find this car dealership, and we are lost. I mean, I could find my way back to Highway 57, but reality is... I didn't have GPS, didn't have a smartphone. I don't know where this car dealership is at all. I have an address. I thought, well, maybe we can just drive into Plymouth and look around for it. But you know, even though I have a street address, I still don't know the rest of the streets. So I wasn't quite sure what to do at that point. But I think this set of worthless directions and this story about how we were searching for someone we thought we knew where it was and we got lost, I think that's a pretty good picture of what life in this world is oftentimes like. There are a lot of people in this world, all of us really, are trying to go in the direction that we think is right. And oftentimes we're trying to follow a set of directions that we feel like comes from a trustworthy source. But oftentimes we end up going in a direction that really is not the the most beneficial for us or ultimately is not the right direction for us. And reality is oftentimes we're hard-hearted or hard-headed, we're a bit stubborn, we think, oh, I'll just keep going on, I'll, I'll find the right way. 
But the reality is, if there is one true God, and if the Bible is true, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, the reality is that there are many people who are going in directions, even directions that they feel like are, are being pointed to from trustworthy sources, that they're ultimately going to find out we're the wrong direction. They might find it out in this life. They might find it out sooner rather than later. Or they might have to wait to etern- till eternity to find out. But at some point, if the Bible is really true and God really exists, many people are going to find out, you know, I was following a set of instructions or directions that I thought was right. But it's getting me to a place I never thought I'd end up being. Today's message is called Engaging Secular Culture. And this word secular is a word that really just means anti-God. Or it doesn't include God in it. And you can have people who are secular who don't want God to have any part in their lives. You can have organizations or cultures that are secular that just really don't have any reference to God in what they're doing. And I think this is a good description of our society, at least where it's headed, of increasingly secular. Increasingly, we see our society doesn't really want much to do to God, with God. Many people even deny God's existence. You know, even within church, you have a lot of people who go to church, even week in, week out, who are what could be called practical atheists. That with their mouth and in their head, they can talk all they want about the right Christian beliefs, but they're called practical atheists because the way that they live their life really has little reference to God. Their lives and the things they value and the things they do and the things they say really aren't all that much different than the rest of the world. So they they confess God with their mouths and in their minds, but the way they live denies God. They're practical atheists. Now we look at Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus, when saying that, is saying there's really one way to have a relationship with God, one way to the true life that God intends for us. And that is through following Christ by faith. And so if this is true, we have the question of how can we point more people from wayward paths, from paths where they're ultimately going in a direction that's not going to be the right direction, a direction that they won't end up where they want to end up. How do we take them from that point and point them in the direction of following Christ? How do we engage our secular culture with the gospel? That's the question we are looking at today. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew or the chair in front of you. Uh, today we're looking at um, the Turning Point series. We're in the middle of the series. And Turning Points is all about looking at those key events and significant shifts that took place in the early church in the book of Acts, which all served to accelerate the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And today's Turning Point is engaging secular culture specifically with the gospel. And Acts 17 is probably one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. It takes place in Paul's second missionary journey. He has just uh, ventured on from the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. There, there have been riots that have started because people didn't like what Paul was saying about Jesus. And so for Paul's safety, he went on uh, to the city of Athens. And he's waiting in Athens in this passage we're looking at today. He's waiting in Athens for his, his companions, especially Timothy and Silas, to join him there. So we're going to pick up here um, in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, and we're going to look at the first of what are three um, keys that will help us to engage with the secular culture. And the first key is to make sure that our heart is engaged in what we are doing with the gospel and the secular culture. And we see uh, verse 16, it says that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed 
to see that the city was full of idols. So we see here that Paul was greatly distressed. Uh, Another way that that could be put is that he was provoked to anger. And we can see that Paul's heart was definitely engaged in what was taking place here. He was engaged because he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, idols in that culture would typically be statues of some sort, made of perhaps uh, stone or marble or gold or silver or bronze or brass or uh, ivory. They would be carefully crafted to depict all these gods of the Greek culture. Now, you may be familiar with the names of some of these gods, gods like Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and and Athena Nike. Um, I mean, Nike shoes, that comes from the Greek god of victory. Um, There are all these gods that, that, that they would worship, and there are many other gods that we've never even heard of. And in today's culture, but there were all these gods and all these little statues that would be up all around the city. In addition to that, there were all these temples and shrines and altars throughout the city so that people could worship these gods and offer sacrifices to these gods. And Athens, I mean, the entire Greek culture was this way, but especially Athens. There is a, um, an ancient Roman comedian who's kind of making fun of, of the Greek culture, especially there in Athens. And he said that, you know, in Athens, it's easier to find a god than it is to find a person. I mean, I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but he's really just saying, you know, there are all these gods and these statues and these idols throughout the city. There's an ancient Greek historian who lived a few hundred years before the time of Christ who, who said that Athens is one great altar, one great sacrifice. And that really just depicts the city as just being a very idolatrous city, a city that was following all these various gods. And Paul was seeing all these things. And I think it's interesting to see how Paul was looking at the city because you go to great cities. I mean, if you went to um, a large city, especially a world city like New York City, London, Athens, they can be very, very impressive cities. I mean, think about Athens with the Acropolis there. If you've ever been there, even if you've just seen pictures, it's simply amazing to see all the things that are there in Athens. But we have to recognize that much of the famous architecture in Athens, even up in the Acropolis, are temples to these pagan gods. The the, the Parthenon itself, one of the most famous buildings in the entire world, is a temple for pagan worship to the goddess Athena. And so these, all these famous um, buildings in Athens, so many of them are temples of pagan worship. And Paul wasn't just in awe of the beauty of the architecture and wondering how in the world would they build something like that in the ancient times. Paul was seeing beneath the surface and seeing that there is this idolatrous worship going on. He, he, was, he was greatly distressed because people were giving glory and attention to these false gods that really should all be going to the one true God. I think that Paul was also greatly distressed because he saw that so many people were being led astray from following God. And he had compassion on them. I think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. It says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he's saying that people are oftentimes like sheep without a shepherd, that they're trying to find the right way, but so oftentimes they're lost. 
And so they need someone to come to help guide them back to the right path. And I think that Paul had that same type of heart. He had compassion on them. He saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. They need help to find the one true God rather than giving all their attention to false gods who can never ultimately satisfy or guide them. And I think that our culture in many ways was very much like that culture. I mean, there are so many parallels. We oftentimes think of ancient cultures being very rudimentary, very um, just basic and not having the luxuries that we have. The ancient Greek culture in the Roman Empire was highly sophisticated. I mean, if you study that, that era, there wasn't another culture that was that sophisticated until you fast forward probably another 1,500 years. It was a highly sophisticated, sophisticated culture. It was also what could be called a very pluralistic culture. A pluralistic culture is one that believes that there are many different truths that are all right. And, and just like our culture, you have many people with very, various theological beliefs, spiritual beliefs, philosophical beliefs. It was the same thing in that culture. People who believed all kinds of different things and thought, you know what, it's all right. There's no one who's really ultimately wrong. And so as we look at this idea of making sure our heart is engaged in reaching people with the gospel, I mean, we definitely want our heart engaged because if it's not, we're not going to be ultimately motivated long term to reach our culture with the gospel. But I think it's important to clarify that we're called to engage our culture with grace and not in anger. It's easy to get worked up when we see uh, the moral decline of our culture, when we see people blatantly rejecting God and leading others in bad decisions. I mean, it's easy to get worked up. Even Paul was greatly distressed. He was provoked to anger. But it's important that as we engage with the culture that we don't do so from a basis of anger, but from a basis of compassion and of grace. I think of what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He said, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You hear that? He's saying, let your conversation be full of grace. Let it be seasoned with salt. Let the gospel permeate everything that you say, but let it be gracious. I think also of what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Paul said, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So we see that, that when we are seeking to represent God in the world, we are not called to quarrel, to, to fight with people, to, to get in harsh arguments with them, but instead to teach, to gently instruct them and the hope that they will come to their senses and repent from their false beliefs and come to knowledge of God. So we see that there's a graciousness here, not, not a motivation that comes from anger and, and condemnation, but from grace and a desire to help point them to the one true God. So we need to make sure our heart is engaged. But secondly, we also need to meet people right where they are. Pick up with me in verse 17. We saw that Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. 
They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and learning uh, or listening to the latest ideas. So we see the importance here of meeting people where they are. And there are a couple of aspects of this. One aspect of, is the aspect of location, going to where people are, not just expecting them to come to us, but we see that Paul, first of all, went to the synagogue. This was his typical practice to, to talk about Jesus the Messiah to the Jewish people and those who, who loved uh, God according to the Old Testament there. But he didn't confine himself just to the synagogue. He also went to the marketplaces day by day and talked with everyone who was there. And I think that was very strategic because the majority of the people of Athens were not Jewish people. They knew little to nothing about what we know as the Old Testament. And so he had to go to where the people were. So he went to the marketplace. The marketplace in that day would be a very bustling place because people oftentimes in that culture did not spend that much time in their homes because most people's homes were very, very small not good for much besides sleeping. And so they would be out and around. So many people would be out in the marketplace. This was also the place where philosophers and people would just be gathered to discuss the latest ideas. And so Paul goes out into the marketplace to the place where people were. And we see that an amazing door opens for him as he's telling people about Jesus and about Jesus' resurrection. We see that he is invited to a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a council consisting of the main leaders of Athens. One of the things they did in addition to leading the city of Athens is that they would also discuss all these latest uh, philosophies and theories uh, about spiritual things and about life. And Paul had the opportunity to go there and tell them about Jesus. An amazing door for ministry had opened to him. And this is the way it oftentimes is in our culture too, that if we are going out to meet people where they are, and are faithfully sowing seeds for the gospel where our conversation is always full of grace, seasoned with salt, we will find that doors will also open for us for fruitful ministry. I think, for example, back in 2002, I was uh, just, I had literally just graduated from college a couple weeks before. And my friend, a few months before that, one of my friends from college, had this great idea of let's do this outreach at this hard rock music, music festival called X-Fest. It was in Somerset, Wisconsin, and um, we went to X-Fest, and frankly, I was kind of scared. I was a little intimidated, wondering, how are 10,000 people around the age of college students who are all drunk, how are they going to respond to people trying to represent Jesus there in their midst? So I was a little bit scared, um, but I said, I'm just going to go along anyway. So my friend had gathered me and a couple other people to go along with this thing, and so we went in there uh, with a plan. We had 1,300 cans of soda and bottles of water that we were going to distribute for free. And we had 500 CDs of Christian rock music that we were going to distribute to people. And we were just going to be there, available in the campgrounds, just to see what, what doors got opened up for ministry. And it was an amazing weekend. I mean, my fears quickly subsided as I saw, wow, there are so many amazing opportunities here. You know, people are just milling about the campgrounds. A lot of people there didn't even go to the concerts. They were there for the partying. And so we saw amazing opportunities. Yes, there were some wild things that took place there. Um, anyway, I could tell you all kinds of stories. <laughs> uh, there are some decent stories that are G-rated. I mean, one of the people found out it was a Christian CD. They, they caught it on fire in their campfire and threw it back at us. 
Um, we had one guy knock on the door of our camper at 4.30 in the morning yelling, Jesus people, Jesus people, wake up! He needed a pen to write with because he found a great tattoo artist there and he wanted to write down the guy's contact information so he could contact him later. But then at 4.30 in the morning, my friend who gave him a pen ended up having a half-hour conversation with him about the gospel. And so we had so many amazing conversations, but one of the guys I met there very early on was a man named Jake. You see him pictured up there? Uh, I met him the very first afternoon there. And we had several tremendous conversations about the gospel. And at one point that first day, Jake said, you know, on Sunday morning, I think we should have a church service. I said, what? You want to have a church service here? And keep in mind, I, I wasn't a pastor. I, had just, I was a college student. I just graduated a couple weeks before. And I'm like, okay, so you, let me get this straight. You want to have a church service out here on Sunday morning? He said, yeah. Okay, what do you want to do in the church service? Well, talk about John 3.16. I'm like, okay. And so we ended up deciding, okay, we're going to have a church service on Sunday morning. This is the cool open door that I'm referencing here. The open door, Jake was kind of one of those people you call a, people, a person of peace. I mean, maybe he was a believer, maybe he wasn't a believer, and he's kind of on the borderline there. Um, but, but he was opening up doors um, for ministry with his friends. So Sunday morning came, and I said, okay, I'm going to give a little devotional on John 3.16 about the gospel and the love of God for us. And one of my friends um, who was there with us, he's going to share his testimony about how God had brought him out of a, a very suicidal place where he didn't see a purpose in life and now had given him an incredible purpose through Christ. So we're just going to go there and see what happens. So Sunday morning came. I went over there to Jake's campsite. If you see that big blue uh, tent, uh, TP in the background, that was Jake's. Um, so he had a lot of people gathered around there. Went there to look for him, couldn't find him anywhere. They said, oh, he's up there in that van. Went up there and found Jake. He was not really in his right mind. Um, at that point, I said, Jake, you want to do a church service? What should we do? He said, well, go ahead and do it. Just go down there and tell him you want to do a church service. And so I went down there to the campfire. There were about a dozen people gathered around there. And said, okay, um, Jake said he wants to do a church service here. Is that fine with you guys? They said, yeah, go ahead. Tell us what you need to tell us. And so just kind of stumbled my way through John 3.16 and talking about Jesus and, and his love for us and what he did for us on the cross. My friend shared his testimony. And it was really cool to see as we were there talking about Jesus, there were people who began to come out of their tents to listen. And I mean, 12 grew into 15, grew into 20. And, and people began, I mean, you could tell, a lot of the women I could tell were definitely engaged in what was being said there. And then afterwards, I was wondering, okay, well, the men there just kind of sitting there not wanting to appear too interested in the spiritual things. But then a lot of the guys started asking questions. And, and so for the next half hour or so after that church service, was, which lasted all of like six minutes, um, I mean, we weren't singing songs. We didn't have any official prayers or anything. Anyway, they asked questions. So, so for about half an hour afterwards, we had the opportunity to talk with more people about Jesus. And it was just such an amazing open door that when you put yourself out there and go to where people are and are just seeking graciously and faithfully represent Christ, amazing doors open. Now, I don't know what the long-term fruit from that time was, but even, even being reminded of this in the last couple of days uh, reminded me to pray for the people who, who we sowed seeds in their lives for the gospel there. But you don't have to go to a hard rock music festival in order to, to represent Christ to our culture. In your workplace, in our neighborhoods, we have the opportunity to represent Christ, to build relationships with people who may not care much about God, but it's amazing that when we are faithful to build those relationships, to meet people right where they are, that God will open doors, probably not with everyone, but at least with a handful of people, open doors for ministry. 
I mean, I love hearing stories from people here in the congregation of how in their workplace, I mean, they try to represent Christ. They try to show, uh, sow seeds for the gospel. And then when someone has a crisis moment, when someone in their family passes away, when they have a spiritual question, who do they go to? They go to the people who have been sowing the seeds, whom they know are Christians. In our neighborhoods, as we build relationships with people, meet with them right where they are, we will find that over time, there will be open doors and open hearts to the gospel. And so it's important that we not just ask people to come to us, but if we want to engage uh, secular culture, that we are going to where people are. But there's a second aspect of meeting people where they are, and that's the aspect of language, of speaking in a way that people can understand. Pick up with me. We're going to read the rest of this passage, a longer section, beginning in verse 22, to find out what Paul said in that meeting of the Areopagus. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by, by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him, this is Jesus, raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So we see here the importance of not just meeting people where they are location-wise, but meeting people where they are in terms of language in a way that they can understand. Paul starts out by saying, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. I mean, that's, almost, that's really a sort of compliment. I mean, he's building common ground with them, saying, you know, I looked around, I can see you're very religious. I even found this altar that's to an unknown God, just in case you guys left out of God and all your thousands of other gods you're representing here in the city. Just in case that God's offended, here's an altar to an unknown God. And so he builds that common ground with them, and from that common ground goes on, essentially, to share the gospel, telling the entire biblical storyline from creation all the way till the end of time. But I think it's very interesting to see the way that Paul goes about this, this particular speech to the Areopagus. Notice that he does not reference Scripture in this speech. In pretty much every other speech that you see from Paul in the book of Acts, it's, it's filled with references to Old Testament Scripture. But here he doesn't. 
He quotes, he makes two quotes here. Over in verse 28, he quotes, first of all, for in him we live and move and have our being, and also we are his offspring. But those quotes don't come from Scripture. I mean, they're in Scripture now in Acts 17. But they were from pagan poets and pagan philosophers. What Paul had done was he picked up these quotes that, that supported his points, but they were quotes from people, pagan philosophers, pagan poets, that these pagans there in the Areopagus would have understood and would have respected. And he used that as a starting point for building a bridge to these people who had very little to no understanding of Scripture. Now, we have to recognize that in pretty much all of Paul's other speeches recorded in Acts, he was in Jewish synagogues. And in Jewish synagogues, people had already a respect for Scripture. And so Scripture then was a great starting point in trying to show that Jesus was the Messiah. But here when Paul is in a, a very pagan culture that has no respect for Scripture, no understanding of the one true God, he doesn't start with Scripture. He starts by building common ground that they can understand and builds from that common ground to pointing to Jesus. I think this is a very important point as we are seeking to engage secular culture. That we have to understand that a lot of our culture doesn't respect Scripture, doesn't believe that even in God's existence. And so oftentimes, if we just try to start off by quoting a bunch of Scripture, we get very quickly dismissed. Um, I've even found some people get upset with me when they don't respect Scripture and I try to quote it. And I, there's a fine balance to be had here because we know that Scripture is powerful. Hebrews chapter 4 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates our hearts. Isaiah 55 says the Word of God will not return void. That it will do its work. So there's a balance to be had here, but I think practically it's oftentimes helpful to try to build common ground with people um, and, and still with an eye to uh, definitely of leading to Christ and leading to the gospel, but to build a foundation of understanding for why we can trust Scripture and why Jesus is who he says he is, why we can believe in God. Think back to my story of being lost uh, looking for the car dealership. These directions definitely did not help me uh, all that much at all. I already knew I had to go north on Highway 57. That was where they left me off. What I ended up doing, I, I didn't drive into Plymouth just looking around. I ended up deciding, okay, I'm going to call the dealership and ask, where are you? And so the woman on the other end of the phone said, okay, um, where are you? And where are you coming from? And I asked, okay, have you ever heard of like County Road V or County Road N? I was reading that off the directions I just driven on, and she said, nope. And because I thought, well, maybe I'm really close to it. I'm just not quite there. And she didn't know where that was. And so I said, okay, I was coming north on Highway 57. And so starting with Highway 57, she said, okay, take 57, come on north into Plymouth. At your second stoplight, you're going to see a fleet farm up there on your left. Take a left at your second stoplight, and we're right there. Now notice what she did. She, she didn't just say, okay, at Fleet Farm, take a left, and you'll be there. Because I had no idea where Fleet Farm was. It was helpful once I got there as a reference point, but she started with a common point that I already knew as well. I knew where Highway 57 was. She knew where Highway 57 was. And starting at that point that I knew, she gave me directions of how to get to the dealership. And that's a picture of what we should seek to do as we engage the secular culture with the gospel. Start where they are um, and build the bridge that leads to the gospel. But ultimately, our goal here is to bring them 
to Jesus. Not just to have a nice conversation, not just to talk about things of culture, not just talk about science or, or sports or um, what's going on in the media, but to point people ultimately to Christ. So you can start with building common ground with them, but ultimately we need to point them to Christ. And that's what we see Paul doing here. And it's not just pointing people to Christ, but bringing them to Jesus, recognizing, you know, if people start off a long way from Christ, it may be a long journey. And we need to walk with them. You think about times when uh, you're following someone in a car to try to get to a destination. They say, oh, just follow me. I'll, I'll lead you there. What happens if they are driving way too fast? One, you get frustrated because you end up uh, running red lights and um, all stressed out that they're going to lose you. But, I mean, that's what happens. What you want is when you're following someone that they go a pace that you can follow comfortably but still get you to the destination. It's the same way when trying to bring someone to Jesus, that we are cognizant of where are they now? How can we move them to the next step without moving too quickly? And one of the things we need to do is check what, what language are we using? We need to recognize a lot of the terms that Christians use are terms that are familiar to Christians, but not, may not be as familiar to non-Christians. Even terms like salvation, sin, gospel, uh, cruci- well, crucifixion is somewhat common, but redemption, um, savior. These are words that are essential to the gospel, but in, even if people out in our secular culture have heard of them, they may use different definitions or may not be comfortable understanding what those mean. So if we use those words, which they're good words to use, but we need to make sure we define them to meet people where they are. In essence, we need to be fluent with the gospel. Being fluent with the gospel means we're confident in what the gospel message is. We can communicate it in a variety of ways to get the truth of Jesus across to people in a way that they understand. I think, um, I, I look at what Paul did here. He didn't reference scripture, but he gave all kinds of biblical themes. I mean, he refers here to God as creator, to God as sustainer, God as ruler, God as father, and God is judge. He points to Jesus and points to the importance of repentance. I mean, there you have the entire biblical storyline. And you have the call to turn and follow Christ right there. And we need to gain that same gospel fluency that we can, um, that we can communicate the gospel message in different ways to suit the people we're talking with, but not dilute the actual gospel message itself. The message stays the same. The means in which we share it change depending on the context. Now, as a practical way of learning how to do this, I have a little game. I used to play this game sometimes in college with friends. Take a newspaper, take a magazine, take the evening news, and look at any story in there and play the game of figuring out how can I turn what's in the story back to the gospel. Starting with that, how do we bring it back to Jesus? Let me give you a few practical ways, to, or practical questions to think through to help you do this. Three questions. One, From a biblical perspective, what is praiseworthy in the values or actions portrayed here? You think about Paul. He said, I see in every way you're very religious. I see you're trying to seek God in some way or another. Now, and starting with that point, he builds common ground. And and he also um, points to their pagan poets and philosophers that, that say things that he aligns with. He builds the common ground and says, okay, these are the things I can affirm. That's a way to help build trust with people. But not only look for what's praiseworthy from from a biblical perspective in what's taking place, but also from a biblical perspective, how does this reveal the world's brokenness? Here we're looking at the topic of sin. 
And many times we look at values that are being portrayed. We look at actions that are taking place and the values that underlie them. We find things that point to the world's brokenness. And so we can point out, you know, and, and someone who's seeking to live life that way, they're trying to fulfill themselves. They're trying to find a sense of meaning and purpose. But what they're seeking it in is not ultimately going to satisfy. And that leads to the third question of how does Christ fulfill or redeem the desires or values portrayed here? That this is what brings it back to Christ. When we see someone seeking their identity or their purpose in, in a way that's not ultimately going to fulfill, we can point them back to Christ and say, you know, there's one who already loves you. One who can give you an eternal purpose that will make the world of difference. And so if we want to engage culture, we need to make sure our heart is engaged in actually pursuing uh, this engagement with the culture, with the gospel. We need to make sure that we are meeting people where they are, not just, uh, not just asking them to come to us, not just speaking a language that we understand, but, but speaking a language they can understand to point them to the gospel. And finally, make sure that as we're doing this, that we have the ultimate goal of bringing them to Jesus. Now back to the car dealership. I did eventually find the car dealership. Um, we found a van that we, we liked, uh, found a good deal on it, and ended up buying it. But we never would have done that had we not been able to locate the car dealership in the first place. If I just call it quits when I'm lost out there, could have gone home and we wouldn't have had a van. We wouldn't have had a sale for them. The key was them being able to lead us to where they are. And the, and the more important thing is that for us, as we engage the secular culture, that we meet people where they are. That, that we come to them in a way that they can understand, but lead them to Christ. Christ is the, greater, the greatest treasure anyone can ever find. He fulfills every desire, every longing that we have. And our goal, my prayer for us, is that we will faithfully uh, meet people where they are and bring them to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost. We thank you that you didn't ask us to, to somehow try to live a perfectly sinless life because we could never do that. But we thank you that you came, you sought us out, you sacrificed in our behalf so that we could have a restored relationship with God. And Lord, I pray that you will equip us, empower us, and encourage us, Lord, to be your ambassadors, taking the gospel to a world that is in desperate need of the hope of Christ. May we be effective in this witness, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.